listeners, welcome back to the St. Paul's Hospital Morning Report podcast. This is Stefan Voyer. This podcast, as usual, is supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. Today, I'm joined by Lawrence Chow. Hey, Lawrence. Hey, Stefan. And Barry Casson, usual. Hey, Barry. Welcome. You know, Barry, in all this time, I realize we've been remiss, and we have never really acknowledged or thanked Nikki for her hard work. She's helping us produce this thing. Nikki Thorpe is our audio producer. Thanks, Nikki. So now we're going to go Nikki. ahead. <laughs> Thanks, Nikki. <laughs> Such rude animals. Anyway, we, that's now fixed, and we will continue to acknowledge and, and depend on Nikki for her help. So now we're going to hear a case presented by Lawrence. Uh, sort of skeleton crew today, but I think, Barry, I think we've got this. I'm confident. I think you guys will do just fine. Okay, let's, let's do it. So I'm going to present a case that I saw during my residency. I've changed some key demographic information intentionally just to protect patient confidentiality. And so this was a case that I saw... Um, in the early part of my residency, it was a 40-year-old gentleman who presented with bloody diarrhea. And he was otherwise fairly healthy, just had a history of sinusitis, and he was not taking any medications. So his history is that for the last five months, he's been experiencing crampy abdominal pain with bloody bowel movements. He describes his stools as mainly watery, mixed with some blood, and would have about four to six bowel movements per day. And over this time, he's lost about 20 pounds of weight and most of it over the last two months. He's uh, stated that he's had some subjective fevers over the last two weeks, feels really weak and unable to work anymore. And he went to see his family physician earlier that day and based on how he looked, just suggested he go to the hospital and get uh, expedited workup. So on review of systems, he hasn't traveled anywhere recently. He denies any sick contacts. Um, he doesn't have any extra intestinal manifestations of IBD like perianal disease, arthritis, or uveitis. And from a social standpoint, he's from Vietnam and immigrated four years ago, and he's working at the um, Vancouver airport here. He denies smoking, alcohol, or any drug use, and the only family history is stomach cancer in the father. On physical examination, he's afebrile. Blood pressure is 127 over 87. He's tachycardic at 122. Oxygen saturation is 97% in room air, and uh, respiratory rate is 18. Uh, general examination, he looks quite thin. He looks like he's probably at baseline a, a thin man, but he looks like he's wasted a bit. Otherwise, he has a bit of temporal muscle wasting, but he's not in any acute distress. No lymphadenopathy in his head and neck. JVP is on the low side. Uh, normal heart sounds, no murmurs, and his lungs are clear bilaterally. And on his abdominal exam, where we spend a bit more time, in his right lower quadrant, there's a sense of fullness to palpation, and it's certainly tender, although it's not peritonitic. No organomegaly, and a DRE was done, um, no masses, and there's just sort of maroon-colored stool on your finger. So basic investigations in the emergency department, white blood cells 3.4, hemoglobin is 79, MCB is 70, platelets are 415, he has a peripheral smear done, which shows elliptocytes and microcytes. Sodium's 128. The rest of his uh, creatinine is 71, and the rest of his electrolytes are normal, including his extended electrolytes. Liver enzymes, lipase within normal limits, albumin 19, and a CRP is 173. And then he has some iron studies done, which shows an iron serum iron of two, um, TIBC of two, transfer saturation of 0.14, and a ferritin of 718. So just to summarize where we're at, a 40-year-old gentleman from Vietnam who's presenting with chronic bloody diarrhea, weight loss, subjective fevers, right lower quadrant tenderness with a palpable mass, and evidence of malnutrition and what looks like iron deficiency in his blood work.
So I'm going to pause here and um, like to hear what some of the thoughts are around the room and what next steps you would take. You want to go first, Barry? Age before beauty. Thank you. Uh, age is before beauty, and and uh, but since I have both, I'll I'll I will carry on. So in this man, um, I would look at him from three different points of view. One is he's immunocompetent. Uh, number two, he's immunocompromised. And number three, he's from a different part of the world. So those three lenses would actually inform me as to my thoughts on how to approach a man who has bloody diarrhea for six months. On top of that, layered on that, is the physical examination, which is suggestive of a mass in his right lower quadrant, or at least a fullness in his right lower quadrant. And again, without any imaging, uh, that may or may not add a, a further complexity to this, uh, his presentation. I don't think the sinus disease that he had, at least at this point, I, I, don't in, I wouldn't involve that in his uh, overall assessment. So that's how I would approach it. Stefan, what would you do? Yeah, I think that is that is I think that's really, really insightful. I think that's not how I started to think about it. Um, I think what I probably tend to do is I listen to a story and then I think, OK, like what is the what is the illness script that's being described here? And here I have an illness script that I actually I've seen many times. Right. We've seen a history of a 40 year old man with what really to me sounds like inflammatory diarrhea, bloody diarrhea. And so I was listening to all the stories and all the elements fit and, and for me let's say we took a hundred people that came in with that presentation the vast majority of those people are going to have either an infectious etiology or inflammatory bowel disease let's say so i was just trucking along thinking through those things and then i listen for facts or or new elements that don't fit with that illness script so then we hear this right lower quadrant mass or right lower quadrant fullness and i'm surprised to hear that because that doesn't fit with that illness script so right now what I'm thinking is this is someone with inflammatory diarrhea, either infectious or just other inflammatory, who also has a right lower quadrant mass that I'm going to need to somehow reconcile with the rest. I guess I wasn't, I haven't heard anything to make me wonder if he's immunocompromised, so that didn't really ping for me. And then this business of him being from Vietnam, I'm parking it in the back of my mind because I think it could easily turn out to be relevant. Like if this doesn't turn out to be one of the things that I think think it is i'll need to consider whether that's relevant here but right now i'm not sure what to do with it mm -hmm. I'm, I'm highlighting it i'm not discarding it but it's not at the forefront and i'll, I'll share my my thoughts when i saw this gentleman um, i was pretty early in my residency and fresh out of medical school you know i learned the illness script for inflammatory bowel disease namely crohn's disease and when i got the consult and i saw this patient i was sort of checking off the boxes. Oh yeah, bloody diarrhea, fairly young man. Uh, so he has right lower quadrant pain. And I remember thinking, well, you know, Crohn's disease usually affects the terminal ileum. Seems to make sense. You can get some complications, maybe a phlegmon in the area. And he's got iron deficiency anemia, which is very common Crohn's disease. And upon seeing all of these check boxes in my head, I was pretty confident. This was, this was the illness script that I had learned in medical school. And here it is in real life. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really have any questions in my mind about it. I think, the, you know, the other things that I've sort of parked. So he's Vietnamese, and I'm not sure if that's relevant. Uh, I mean, he's from Vietnam. I don't even know if he's ethnically Vietnamese, but anyway, from Vietnam. He's had this history of sinusitis. I'm also, I, I bothered writing it down because I'm not sure if it's relevant. Mm -hmm. I can imagine a, a universe where it is. 
He works at the airport. And now I know that again, like you're probably saying, Stefan, like take it easy. It doesn't matter. But but there are some things actually that are more common in people who live around or who work at the airport. Like like actually malaria is more. Co- I realize this person does not malaria, but but I'm gonna also park it as a who knows how relevant that is. Like exactly what does he do at the airport? And then the father had stomach cancer. Mm-hmm. I don't know how. I don't know if it's relevant, but I mean, in theory, he could just be bleeding from a mass in his stomach. So I'm gonna. Yeah, park that one as well. I would agree. I mean, it, I think it's 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 open to all interpretations at this point. We don't have enough information to go any one direction. I think each of us has their own approach, but I think we're arriving at we're heading to the same place. And and certainly from a pure pattern recognition point of view, IBD stands out. But if we expand to a more kind of syst- systematic uh, thinking process. A differential at this point would at least include inflammatory bowel disease, infectious etiologies, and malignancy, which is what we've all come around to. I would say malignancy far less likely than the other two, but yeah. And I think unusual infections, uh, if we're talking about infections, we're talking about something that, that isn't an acute uh, salmonella. So we're talking about chronic infections that can, or infections that can cause chronic disease. So TB uh, would be one of the things that we'd need to consider for a variety of reasons. All right, so I'm going to continue on with the case. So he comes into the emergency department. The emerge doc's worried about the right lower quadrant tenderness, wanting to make sure it's not appendicitis, orders a CT abdomen. And so this is the report. He's got severe distal small bowel thickening extending into the terminal ileum, involvement of the cecum and ascending colon. There's moderate pelvic free fluid, widespread mesenteric lymphadenopathy, moderate mesenteric fat stranding. And within the prostate, there's two lesions, 2.7 centimeters and one centimeter with focal prostatic calcification concerning for prostate abscesses on a background of chronic prostatitis. And going back, you chat with them about, are you having any prostate related symptoms? Pain when you pee, you know, you review the physical exam when you did the DRE, that wasn't painful with them either. And so really these are Incidental findings, not symptomatic. You know, it's really interesting. Um, as internists, we often don't consider the prostate except for those of us that get older and where the prostate considers us. But it's unusual for us to involve the prostate in any differential diagnosis. I have to admit that hearing about the prostate would suggest to me that there is an infection and that this infection certainly is still compatible with tuberculosis as it can be a diffuse infection could give you the calcification that he's t- that that he had described. I guess the other things that uh, that it would certainly not be incompatible either with with a, a, another granulomatous process. This information hasn't changed my way of thinking. The prostate findings for me are just confusing. Okay. They haven't helped me one way or the other. So this would be a a, a parking lot. That yeah, you would like I'm put it into. Yeah, like I, I, it will need to be reconciled as well. Uh, but the other findings, t- like for me, they're in keeping with inflammatory bowel disease or or infection still. Yeah, I guess w- the way I hear the other findings is it really doesn't help differentiate all of the things we were talking about. Yeah, I mean it still is compatible with IBD. It's yep. still a compatible with an infection. It's still compatible with a variety of things. I suppose. We could extend that to say that this is a chronic appendiceal abscess, and that and this person has none of the above, and this is what what's been happening over the course of months. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. 
So what's the what's the next step here? What are we going to chase? I think there's some easy investigations, like we need to look at his poop. Not we. I mean, the lab should look at the poop. <laughs> uh, and it needs to be cultured. We need to look for uh, parasites and C. diff, although it's, it's not like I heard any real risk factors for C. diff. You know, I, I'm a little bit worried about the amount of inflammation seen in the colon, but I would speak with a... Uh, with a colonographer about getting a colonoscopy because I think that both the gross appearance as well as a biopsy could be really helpful. And I think for the time being, that's all I would do. I mean, you know, honestly, I, I don't pretend and I'm not uh, trying to be the smartest doctor in the hospital. What I'm trying to be is the most thoughtful and diligent doctor in the hospital. So me and up to date would go take a pause right now and i would look at the differential diagnosis for these prostate findings and see if they can help me in any way because i don't i don't pretend to have that knowledge in my head but it's just a confusing piece for me but i think the investigations that's what i would pursue for right now well i think that we can identify him by uh, appearance and birth certificate as vietnamese um, we can identify him as immune competent and we can identify him as a reason to be immunocompromised. So I would do an HIV test. I think sure. that would be an important part of the assessment at this point. I agree with, I would do the same thing as you about looking at his tools. I don't think C. diff would help me. If I had it, I wouldn't know how to interpret it in light of his presentation and in light of his chronicity. I'm still concerned he's not really acutely unwell and so IBD is still there. This is a, a chronic process that, that you are describing, and I don't think we're closer to I don't have any way of getting closer at, at this point. He did present with a heart rate of 120. So Right. I don't know. Like, I'm not sure how, you know, what does that mean? But but he, he could be pretty unwell. So we, so we did a lot of the workup, including the stool cultures. We also had urology see the patient for an assessment. And... I don't actually think that they actually saw the patient, maybe just looked at the imaging and reviewed things. So they said, empiric antibiotics, maybe we'll do a scope later. And GI was consulted for potential of a scope. And at this point, the provisional diagnosis, working diagnosis was Crohn's disease based on the history and CT findings. So I just wanted to post the group, how do you actually make a diagnosis of Crohn's disease? I think that's a really excellent question. I think Crohn's disease is the disease of no other etiology uh, that can cause the same problem as Crohn's disease. That, to me, that's the diagnosis because I think it, it's, it's histologically compatible. If you saw a form of infection there, you'd be that. If you saw uh, lymphoma, you'd say that that's what it was. If you saw another etiology, then because it's granulomatous uh, uh, process. So I think I think it's a very difficult diagnosis. It's a difficult. It's a diagnosis of inclusion and exclusion. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up learning that it was a diagnosis of inflammatory lesions anywhere from the mouth to the anus, characterized by skip lesions, predilection for the terminal ileum, and the presence of crypt abscesses on a biopsy. And I don't know that I've ever seen a patient with Crohn's who had those things, who had it described exactly that way. So, so uh, yeah, more often it seems a little bit less clear than that, yeah, I, I think we're saying the same thing. I mean, I think also there's certainly some features that are going to be much more specific for inflammatory bowel disease. So if you had skip lesions, there's less things that would cause yeah. fistulizing like disease that. as well, right. I think can be yeah. really helpful. If you had extra intestinal manifestations or a strong family history, it's certainly going to bump up the probability that it yeah. truly is Crohn's disease. But ultimately, 
there is no gold standard test for Crohn's disease, and it is a diagnosis, as you mentioned, of exclusion, but but also inclusion. But it, yeah, it's it has both features. I mean, it's the illness script that you recognize when you've excluded everything else. And everything has to come together, both the history, the physical, the endoscopic features, the histologic features, yeah. the radiographic features. They should all be pointing in the same direction. And I think we've sort of picked up that there are some abnormal characteristics of this patient's presentation that we are in tune with. Oh, you know what? I totally forgot. But when we heard the result of that scan, what did it say about the right lower quadrant? It said there was a mass and thickening along the terminal ileum and the cecum and the descending colon. Is that correct? Yeah, so specifically severe distal small bowel thickening extending into the terminal ileum with involvement of the cecum and ascending colon. And, it, and then there was as well lymphadenopathy in the... Mesenteric lymphadenopathy. Yeah. So does that account... So the thickening in the cecum, the, the inflamed cecum, that's the right lower quadrant mass? I would think so. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. It probably correlated to what you felt. It did, yeah. yes. Okay. I don't know that I've ever felt an inflamed cecum. You may well have. I don't know that I've recognized it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. man. Just a quick review of Crohn's disease. In terms of epidemiology, it affects all ethnicities, but there is a lower prevalence in Asia and the Middle East. Slight female preponderance, bimodal age distribution between 50 to 40 and 50 to 80. So basically, if you're between 40 to 50, you're not supposed to get Crohn's disease. And the distribution of disease, 80% is in the small bowel, usually in the distal ileum. 50% have ileocolitis and 20% have disease limited to just the colon. Common disease manifestations include abdominal pain, diarrhea, uh, bleeding, especially if it's more involved in the colon, perianal disease, oral esophageal gastroduodenal involvement, such as skip lesions, and extraintestinal manifestations including arthritis, uveitis, uh, erythema nodosum, pyoderma gangrenosum, and PSC. And then complications include fistulizing disease, phlegmon slash abscesses, stenosis and obstruction, iron deficiency, and malabsorption. And endoscopically, you would see aphthous ulcers, cobblestoning, which is linear ulcers through inflamed tissue, and you see skip lesions, which again is fairly specific. Okay, so back to our case. So the stool cultures come back negative. OMP was done and was negative. C. diff was negative. And the colonoscopy is performed. And here's the report. This is verbatim out of the actual report. Punched out ulcers in the transverse colon consistent with Crohn's. In the right colon, his entire cecum is almost replaced by ulceration. There is serious cobblestoning in his terminal ileum. This is almost certainly Crohn's disease. Oh boy. Multiple biopsies are taken and those are currently pending. And the gastroenterologist asks you to please start treatment with steroids. Discuss. Yeah, you know, I I, I guess I guess at this point I wouldn't start treatment unless I unless he was quite uh, unless it, things had changed. There's been 6 months where we haven't treated anything. We're waiting for our biopsies. I think that uh, I recognize you're presenting the case so it's unlikely it's going to be Crohn's disease. I just have to, I have to say that. But on the on the other hand, even even prior to this presentation, I mean, there are just some features, as I mentioned at the outset, that I would see with a different lens. And I have have to admit, the prostate intrigues me. That this this he's not symptomatic, but there's another area of disease, and maybe that's something that we should explore. 
And, and you'd think if it was truly a bacterial infection, that's in a very sensitive place that yeah. very few people would not feel have symptoms. any symptoms. Yeah, no, I agree. So there's something unusual about that. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, it's a little bit distorted because we're presenting it here. Yeah. So obviously I've clued in as well that I think, especially, especially with the certainty with which that colonoscopy was reported, it's very suspicious. I, but I would also say with that, with that report and with gastroenterologist asking you to start steroids, what 95% of internists or, or MRPs here would, would start steroids, I think. And, and so like, and I don't even think that that's that crazy to do, but you're right. Like he's not so unwell that you need to jump to do this. You've done biopsies. Yeah. Why not just give it a couple days, be patient, make sure that you're treating the right disease. I think it's, I think we, we make a lot of these errors of commission just because, like, we feel the sense of urgency, like, oh, the patient is in hospital, we need to do something. Almost always you can give it some time yeah. uh, to, to collect your information, cross your, your T's and dot your I's, and make sure that you're doing the right thing. And I think the other dictum that I live by is that when I feel this urgency, whatever it is, it's usually my urgency, not somebody else's urgency. Yeah. And so it's, I try to, I don't, I try not to share that with, other people, but I try to step back and say, why am I suddenly feeling the need to do something when I haven't really felt that need to do something until now? Why am I running around? Why are we doing this right now? What's what's happening? What's changed? So for all of those reasons and the other reasons I said, I think I would do nothing at this. I would symptomatically help, but I wouldn't start. Yeah, you know, just brief digression. I was just at another hospital taking care of a lady who was admitted with influenza. And this made her very sick, and she was, like, throwing up and everything. And she presents with a, a serum sodium of 109. And I felt like everyone in the hospital wanted me to fix this lady's sodium. But she was completely asymptomatic. Yep. And so I just let it ride. And the next day, her sodium was 109, and then it was 109, and then it was 109. And people were just hounding me to do something about this lady's sodium, but she looked fine. And as her disease resolved... Her sodium normalized, but people were so uncomfortable, and yeah, and I'm now in even in the retrospectoscope. I'm sure I did the right thing. It's good pearls. So moving on with the case, so this patient received IV methylprednisone at 62 and a half milligrams every 12 hours, and he, he continued on this over the next five days. They measured serial CRPs, came down to 69, and clinically. He had no improvement. He was still having six or more bloody bowel moves per day, and he was dropping his hemoglobin. So he went down to 58 and required two units. So at this point, he's had five days of empiric treatment for a working diagnosis of Crohn's disease, and he hasn't yet responded in the way that you would expect. Was he given antibiotics? At this point, he was not on antibiotics. I don't think there was a, there was a reason all of his cultures came back negative. And it is pretty common febrile. to treat at least uh, irritable bowel disease, or sorry, inflammatory bowel disease flares with antibiotics, w like evidence-based or not. I think there's, that is common practice. Yeah. I, I think if I needed support for not treating him, um, he's given, the, if watching his, his therapeutic course of five days with him not getting better supports the fact that I shouldn't have treated him in the first yeah, place. Yeah, this is very weird. So, because he's not responding like I would have expected him to respond if this were simply Crohn's disease. Like, after five days, you'd expect 
what like a ninety percent improvement. In well, his certainly symptoms. an improvement, and uh, you know, if, but his but what we've seen is just parallel problems, disease progression or disease persistence, and now we've introduced this other problem. Yeah, yeah. I will the say other problem. A quick literature search on how common steroid re- resistance is in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Roughly fifteen to thirty percent don't respond to IV or high dose oral steroids, um, and for obvious reasons, that's a poor prognostic factor, and they may move on to getting hemicolectomies and full colectomies. So GI is following the background, decides he needs another scope to see if there's been any uh, evidence of improvement. In even the even though he hasn't improved. Even though he hasn't clinically improved, they want they want more proof. They want what endoscopic proof. Yeah. Biopsies are still pending. Five days later. Five days later. They haven't done the Dr. Kassin maneuver of like dragging a pathologist out of their office to go look at a specific sample. Well, when your when your scope report says this is definitely Crohn's disease, you're not going to rush the biopsy. Mm, I don't know. So second colonoscopy is done. Essentially, they say similar severe diffuse ulcerations in the ascending colon, no significant improvement. They repeat numerous biopsies, and this one is put on rush. So we have a lineup of biopsies. We have the original tarmac biopsy awaiting takeoff, and now we've got another set of biopsies that we really need to see the answer to, but we haven't looked at the first one yet, so it's it's a bit bizarre. Agreed. Now, there's one more piece of information that comes later into his admission. He received a chest X-ray, and I think it actually was done at the time of admission, but the report was not read until later. And the report of this chest x-ray says that he has faint nodular opacities in the mid and upper lung zones, possible right side of lymphadenopathy, small right pleural effusion, and the possibility of an atypical infection, including mycobacterial infection is raised, suggests a CT scan. CT of his chest is done, showing multifocal, poorly defined consolidation in the upper lobes, multiple tiny nodules and clusters of nodules within within both lungs and a enlarged lymph node in the right main stem bronchus. And their impression is, given the findings from the CT abdomen, TB must be ruled out. So the biopsy report finally returns from his small bowel in the terminal ileum where he had the most disease, granulation tissue with mixed acute and chronic inflammation, negative for granulomas or malignancy, and in the colon, in the right transverse colon, colonic mucosa with ulcerated acute colitis and numerous granulomas, numerous mycobacterial organisms are seen, both AFB positive and TB PCR positive. When the stools were sent for O&P, was TB looked for in the stools? It was not. And, and to be honest, I've never ordered that from a stool sample do you just order as an AFB? But no, PCR of PCR. the stools. Um, as I said, you know, at the, at the outset, it's just that if you had a high suspicion, otherwise, you because they wouldn't look for it, I don't think. I think they'd have to. I, I've never seen AFB reported. And I'm sure it has been, but I've, I've never seen that report. But I've seen the PCR reported. I guess my mind is going back now to your initial comment, Barry, which was like, I imagine this person is maybe being immunocompromised versus being immunocompetent versus the the relevance of his being from Vietnam. 
So I think here his his origins uh, in Vietnam are probably relevant. Mm -hmm. But I also, you know, I'm wondering about his immunocompetence mm -hmm. because he's presenting in this very inflammatory way. Mm -hmm. And to me in general, tuberculosis presents usually pulmonary or extra pulmonary usually presents much more indolently here he's presented with like five months of inflammatory very inflammatory uh bloody diarrhea so you know maybe that's a maybe that's okay it's still a five-month course but as it turns out the vietnam was was relevant and important and, and now i'm questioning his his immune status was hiv assessed uh, in him it was it was negative okay. in him mm. It certainly is is one way of building a differential. Um, just seeing somebody coming in with an unusual presentation and looking at, at him from an immune standpoint and from a background like uh, his his origins. Standpoint. Well, as you know, I think in in certainly in Vancouver, I mean, I think you need to do that these days. This is, I mean, if you lived in Saskatchewan where I was trained. We had a pretty fixed population. We had a pretty good understanding of the population. And the diseases we saw were, or at least we thought we saw and recognized, were probably compatible with that group. But we didn't have huge numbers of people arriving from different parts of the world with different cultural backgrounds and different uh, ethnicities, different, uh, different components to their, uh, that we'd never seen. I mean, it was, it, we, so I think that for us to assume that anybody is, I don't, wouldn't know how to describe anyone from Vancouver anymore to anybody else, just except to say just the same thing. I mean, we'd probably have to take the, and probably should have taken the, the same approach to everybody. Well, at the same time, like if, if I presented with five months of bloody diarrhea, if the first place your mind went was tuberculosis, I'd say, well, <laughs> well <laughs> probably uh, not. No, but on the other hand, if you look at what the, the uh, HIV group has done is they've they've said you know you don't have to be high risk for us to do an hiv test sure. and they're discovering people who are hiv positive who appear to have no risk so i think we still need to have a lens that even if even if you presented that way that you still potentially could have this yeah, yeah. the same the same is now true of hep c i guess that's yeah. a good example all right cool let's hear it i just want to say i guess i guess uh, ultimately when we're thinking about diagnosis, we have an intuitive mind of pattern recognition. And I think it's important that we recognize the importance of using pattern recognition, but at the same time, knowing when to think a little bit deeper beyond that. Um, I mean, as Stefan was saying, if he had presented, I think I would be right to think that he has IBD yeah. as my first of my differential, unless something else comes up that's a little unusual. I, I don't want to use up my cognitive energy to build this extensive differential diagnosis when 99% chance that this is going to be IBD. I, I don't disagree. I think, in fact, that's the whole concept of, of, of uh, Jake Onrod's Bayesian theory, uh, using Bayesian theory. I mean, you need to have your pretest probability to, to carry on. and that's. But I think that all I'm saying is that if we adopted the view that 95% of this is going to be this common disease, we're still going to miss 5%. So for those 5%, for the 95%, we've done a great job. For the 5%, there's, we're just going to miss them because it's not worth our mental energy to go that far. And so I, th 
I think that we just, we need, you know, I mean, I think you were right. I think the most likely diagnosis was the one you thought of initially. The very, the, and I think the gastroenterologist felt the same way. I think that that was the most, far more likely than this diagnosis, far more likely, except it wasn't. So I'm going to present a little bit of information on TB enteritis because this was my first and so far only case that I've had. The pathogenesis of TB enteritis um, can come from a number of sources. The most common is actually swallowing infected sputum that you cough up when you have pulmonary TB. Uh, other sources of enteritis can be from ingestion of contaminated food, hematogenous spread, and contiguous spread from the abdomen. And the ileocecal region is thought to be the most commonly affected site due to the abundance of lymphoid tissue in that region. So the classic symptoms of TB enteritis, abdominal pain, constitutional symptoms, diarrhea, bloody stool, palpable right lower quadrant abdominal mass in 25 to 50%, fistulizing di- disease, strictures, obstructions, and occasionally ascites. And when you look at all these symptoms... <laughs> Sounds like Crohn's. They sound a lot like Crohn's disease. Yeah. So one of the things that I went back and looked at was what is the differential for terminal ileitis? Because to me, that was pathognomonic for a Crohn's disease. But in retrospect, it's actually a lot of things that can cause terminal ileitis. Yersinia infection, salmonella, TB, uh, amoeba, actinomycosis, lymphoma, and even NSAIDs can apparently cause it. So I thought this was actually a really um, interesting point. When you look at best practices and guidelines from around the world, they vary depending on the demographics that you're that you have in that location. So I actually pulled up some consensus statements from the Asia Pacific on the diagnosis and management of Crohn's disease. So here's statement number one. The diagnosis of Crohn's disease is based on a combination of clinical, endoscopic, radiologic, and histologic features, and where appropriate, the exclusion of an infectious etiology. Statement number two. Iliocolonoscopy is the preferred diagnostic investigation. Multiple biopsies from at least five sites in the colon and terminal ileum should be taken and include endoscopically normal and abnormal areas. Statement number three. Biopsies for TB should be taken from patients living in countries where TB is endemic. Statement number nine, it is important to differentiate Crohn's disease from intestinal TB. Bichette's disease should be excluded in areas of high prevalence. And statement number 12, a trial of 8 to 12 weeks of anti-TB treatment is reasonable in patients where it is not possible to confidently differentiate between TB and Crohn's disease. In patients showing no or partial symptom response at 8 to 12 weeks, a repeat colonoscopy should be done to differentiate colonoscopy is suggested to document mucosal healing at the completion of anti-TB therapy. Not something that we do in our best practices. Right. I think it reflects exactly what you said, the, their experience. Um, I have to admit that I was a, a bit flavored by this because I had an associate years ago that actually lived um, and went to practice uh, in, in this part of the world and was told he had a lymphoma and went to surgery for for a tissue diagnosis of lymphoma with many of the same symptoms that this person presented with, and TB was the answer. And this is many years ago, so I'm, I'm a bit flavored by, with the presentation and, and my remembering that, that piece of information. Wonderful that is interesting. Case. I think geography is really interesting. I used to work in, in rural uh, South Africa, and, and at the hospital where I was working, if you presented with fever, 
and cough at an ESR of greater than 100, you would get TB therapy. Yeah. No x-ray, no nothing. Yeah. And, and you know, it's just, you know, we'd never even consider that here, but there it's probably the right thing to do like 99% of the time. So, I, I, yeah, geography is, is really relevant. How did this person do? Uh, unfortunately, he did not do well. He had extensive TB everywhere. And he was started on um, oral TB treatment. And several days after that, he developed a perforated bowel, went for emergent surgical resection, had a prolonged ICU admission, was no longer really absorbing his TB medications, and he continued to decline and unfortunately passed away in the ICU. Wow. I mean, that is really something for a 40-year-old previously well man. That's, that's bonkers. That is a very unusual course. Mm. So just, uh, I mean... When it, where did he perforate? Do you know? I think it was in the ileum. I, did, you, did you come across, and I don't know this, did you come across anything about perforation associated with colonoscopies and repeat colonoscopies? It's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I don't think you could disagree that he was higher risk for perforation based on the findings on the colonoscopy. I also wonder how much damage was done when he was given steroids oh. over that course of the week and his TB might have just gone crazy. Yeah, I guess I'm less sensitive to that um, at this point. And I guess part of the reason is we use steroids uh, for treatment of TB, TB meningitis, TB pericarditis. Uh, we've had experience where we're using steroids with uh, pneumocystis, which is n- not the correct uh, name these days, but in any case, I, I think we, I think that's overplayed. I think th- that, um, so I, I share your concern, but I'm not sure that that was more contributing than, than anything else. Or, or maybe his disease was that progressive that, uh, as you pointed out, that that's what happened. I would guess bad luck here's the issue, or yeah, or or, or an undiagnosed immunodeficiency. But it's just all very sudden. It's really something. But, I, you know, when I hear this case, I think it's, it is n- totally natural to say, could anything have been done differently in this case? And honestly, as I hear this, I don't see anything that I would have even retrospectively done any differently. Um, now, we're assuming that the prostate lesions were TB as well? Yeah. I think that's the presumption. You know, I, I think the only thing, if I saw this case again, this exact same case, which I never will, <laughs> The only thing I would do differently is recognize that something is not sitting right yeah. and just rush the biopsy. Other than that, I, I agree. I don't see that I could have, I could have, you know, came to the conclusion earlier. But, I, you know, just recognizing that, that something is not pointing towards, all, all the arrows aren't pointing towards Crohn's disease. But, and I guess the other part of that is, is that we do these things for a diagnosis, I mean, if, if, if we weren't going to use the biopsies, if, if the diagnosis was just visual, then why subject anybody to the biopsy or the risk of biopsy? So if we've got the, if we have that and we're just waiting because the protocol says we have to wait five days, there's nothing magic about five days. I mean, it could be, so I just say, well, compress it. What do you have to do to, to see this darn thing? And do it. And then if it's helpful, okay. And if it's not helpful, okay too yeah there are situations where you need to treat empirically because the the 
of the gravity of the situation. Yeah. It doesn't sound like that was the case here. Right. So we had the answer sitting in another part of the hospital. Yeah. Cool. Great case. Thanks, Lawrence. Thank you, guys. Thanks again, and thanks again to our audience for tuning in. Um, again, this was the St. Paul's Hospital Morning Report podcast supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. See you next time.